Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. This week, we share a recorded discussion hosted by the Civil Liberties Defense Center. CLDC has been at the forefront of anti-repression legal work for decades now, working on many of the Green Scare cases in which the FBI infamously hounded and smashed radical environmental organizing between 2000 and 2008. In this discussion, Hava and Lauren speak with Letha, a longtime supporter for Marius Mason, who is the last remaining Green Scare prisoner. Marius is a former Bloomington resident whose public organizing and clandestine acts of sabotage in the 1990s presaged many of the ecological concerns which have now become global issues as we face climate catastrophe. Marius was harshly sentenced to almost 23 years in prison for acts of sabotage against logging, highway construction, water privatization schemes, and corporate genetic engineering. He came out as a trans man while inside and is being held at the federal prison in Danbury, Connecticut. Now he's in a men's facility, which as far as anyone knows, I know it says like there's careful wording on the support website because perhaps there's someone that we don't know about. And so we can't know it all, all of the time. But as far as we know, Marius is the first trans man who has been within the Federal Bureau of Prisons, within that system, transferred to a men's facility. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what Marius has had to say about that move, uh, what led to it, what was the impetus or desire for it, and how that transition of being in the men's facility is going for him now. Yeah, of course. So I guess it's it's worth stating uh, that this is 100% Marius's choice. Um, so Marius, all the things that I just listed are things that Marius advocated for himself. Uh, constantly, every day, contacting um, or grabbing any person who works in the prison in medical to say, like, I need these things, and like, my survival is these is like necessity um, for my survival. Um, and so, one of those things being uh, transferring to a men's facility. And really, what that comes from is that this entire time, while Marius has been receiving uh, tea treatment. And, you know, on and off, because that's also just, it's not like he was granted tea treatment and then like he was set. Um, every, again, every time he receives treatment, it's a fight to do so. Um, and so in terms of like the levels that he needs or getting in line for treatment, you know, everything involved in that. Um, but his main goal has always been to full transit, a medical transition. Um, and what he has been told is that he had to live as a man in a men's facility for at least a year before he was able to access that treatment. Um, and so that's sort of where he is now is that he transferred from the women's facility at Danbury to the men's facility for that very purpose. I forget what year you said he transferred to the men's facility. Was that just last year or the year? Yeah, it was last year, yeah. Last year. So it's been almost, almost exactly a year since then because in the, piece that he wrote about his move, uh, he was alerted about the move right at Rosh Hashanah at the Jewish New Year. And he also, I think, just sometime in the recent 
past uh, also converted to Judaism, which is very exciting and very cool. But we're almost now at a year where Rosh Hashanah on the Jewish calendar is coming up in just about a week and a half. So it's uh, traditionally, as uh, also another Jewish anarchist, I'll say it's a, supposed to be an extra sweet time. And reading Marius's um, writing about the news, like today's the day that you are moving to this facility that you've been working towards and advocating for this move for it to come at that time. Um, it was really beautiful to read that that's when that happened for him. Um, I want to transition just a, a little bit back to something that Lauren had mentioned, which is that Marius is serving the longest sentence of any of the Green Scare era prisoners um, and is the only one that is still currently serving a sentence, although there's one other prisoner or uh, person who will be sentenced sometime this fall, Joseph Dibby, so another Green Scare era. Um, defendant. Uh, but could you share a little bit with us more about that kind of particularly draconian sentence uh, that he was given and the ways that that's impacted him and his connection to other people, but also any efforts that might be underway or currently or in the past um, regarding that sentence or restrictions that the terrorism enhancement put on him? Yeah, of course. So yeah, I think that Warren pointed this out and just to make it clear that initially the um, the state was asking for 18 years for Marius um, and the judge actually boosted it up to 21 years and 10 months. Um, and so, you know, even the state was not asking for, I mean, even the state was not asking for as many as he, he did end up receiving. Um, I think, yes, again, what Lauren said that the enhancement of the terrorist charges um, is definitely a, a major point in how he's been treated while incarcerated as, in addition to his sentence. Um, and much of that has to do with initially, you know, he was in Waseca um, for a brief period, I think less than a year, and then moved into the administrative unit at FMC Carswell. Um, and FMC Carswell, the admin unit specifically, I understand, was at one time the only women's death row in the country. Um, and while he was there, he was with some people, I think only two people who were the only last two women um, in the federal uh, prison who were on death row um, and a few others. And so it was there, the security was extremely tight. Um, when I would visit him, it would mean that he, you know, he was, the prison was on a military compound. So we would have to go through military security. Um, then we would have to enter the general population prison. Then we would have to get a special detail that would take us over to the administrative unit. Um, and so, you know, all of that was, you know, again, this, this idea that Marius is, is extremely dangerous, that he's a terrorist, um, that really, you know, showed up in going to see him and the way that he was treated um, at FMC Carswell. Uh, additionally, his communication was was very much controlled. Um, so it, some of that stems from, and, and I was talking to a, a friend earlier today, a friend of Marius's, about the many times or the few times during his incarceration where he has received what's called a shot, 
Um, so he is potentially gone to the hole or um, been in solitary confinement because he was in violation of some some kind of rule. Um, and most of those, um, you know, I can think of three right now. Uh, so one was initially when he was um, first brought into FMC Carswell, um, it was suggested by a group, I believe in Columbus, Ohio, that um, they do a like anarchist book club together. Um, and that was quick, quickly shut down and more security measures were put into place about his contact um, in and outside of prison uh, because it was it was suggested that Marius was some kind of like puppet master or ringleader of the movement um, and that he had control over uh, different actions um, that were going on still in the Midwest, including the um, I-69 movement. Um, and then later on, another example is he wrote a personal statement about, uh, I believe it was June 11th, a few years back, um, which he sent to his attorney, who's also a friend, um, but that resulted in a shot because the um, person was saying that he was using legal mail inappropriately, um, sort of circumventing their ability to control his, his you know, contact with the outside. Um, and then the last one that I can remember was actually he just he had just transferred to this facility, the men's facility, um, and he received a shot for having too many pairs of underwear. Um, so again, uh, like these are, are pretty serious. It's not just, you know, that it's written in some file. It's that Maurice really does suffer the consequences, whether it be, you know, privileges or um, what might come in the future. And so if he were to ask for something or advocate for something in the future, they can call back to these infractions um, and you know, set them up against him. Um, you know, can I add something to that, Lita? Oh, yes, please. So we had a couple of other Green Scare defendants that were sent to communication management units, CMUs, uh, they literally were previously called terrorist prisons and terrorist facilities, and there were literally only people of Middle Eastern um, background that were in these tightly controlled prisons where all your communications, you know, you're in a cell locked down 24 hours a day, you know, pretty extreme security provisions even for a uh, federal prison but the primary purpose of them you know as the name says says is to manage your communications so that you um, both can't get word out to the outside world but also to just deprive you of the family and other social contacts that often are the lifeline for people who are incarcerated and there were only CMUs or these terrorist prisons for um, men at the time. And my recollection when um, Marius was first transferred to Carswell was that it, was, it became the CMU for uh, women prisoners, you know, at the time. Um, and so what was the death row unit became basically the CMU for, um, you know, female prisoners at that time. And the other thing I wanted to add is, I remember early on, um, Marius getting shots and discipline that was challenged. And part of my recollection of the discipline was that 
basically they were helping fellow incarcerated people access healthcare or um, you know benefits or other things like that. And the prison basically gave them shots and punished them for, you know, quote unquote, organizing within the prison, which at the time, you know, I was both like happy for and sad for, you know, happy that that spirit had not been, uh, you know, completely drained out of them by the oppressive systems that they are subjugated to at all times. Um, but also sad that just simple gestures of kindness were so prohibited, you know, by that carceral system. Yeah, I think, um, as Lauren said, you know, one thing that Marius has and internally identifies with that most other people don't have is that he does have some family members that are still very close. He still has close friends that are able to visit him. He has his children. Um, and so sometimes that means simply like, he's able to get access to paint that other other prisoners are not able to have access to, or he receives books in the mail that he would love to pass along to somebody or put in the prison library. But um, pretty much every aspect of prison does not allow for that. Um, so he is sometimes, you know, he can only hold on to so many books at a time. I believe right now it's five. Um, and so, you know, if he goes over a certain amount, again, he could be penalized for that. And then he can't give it to another prisoner or he, you know, it may be difficult to do so um, for whatever reason at that time, he can't give it to the prison library and so they get thrown out. Um, and so, yeah, there's really pretty much, you know, it's, it's beautiful, I agree that Marius has continued to care for everyone around him as, as he did on the outside. He continues to care for everybody around him inside, also outside, um, you know, and I, but yes, it's always, it, it's always him looking over his shoulder in terms of what he is and is not able to do. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been especially hard on him. I guess the only other thing I would add is that with the CMU, um, designation uh, is that Marius has also throughout his incarceration only had a limited number of people he can contact and be contacted by. And um, so that's a hundred people, the list of a hundred people. Um, and like that list is changeable. So he can request to have people taken off and put on. So like, let's say he's talking to somebody for a long period of time, but uh, they stop communicating with him for whatever reason, he can take that person off you know, or request that person to be taken off the list and then another person to be added on. Um, but that still requires him to go to administrative staff and, and ask for that. It's not as easy as like he signs onto a computer and is able to like switch things around. Um, and so, you know, it's again, one of those, like he has to ask for everything that he receives, like everybody else in prison, um, where it's, it, it's not that simple. It is a struggle. It does mean that he's putting himself out on the line again for, um, you know, potentially being told no. Um, certainly there's, there's been people who have attempted to visit him or who have written to him and not been back or not been approved for visitation. So yeah, that's another aspect of that communication control. Yeah. So one other thing, this is a little bit off that, off that topic a little bit, but I feel like, you know, one of the things that, you know, as a lawyer who has defended activists for most of my life now, um, when we are doing Know Your Rights trainings and working with radical communities, 
you know, we talk about like preparing for the worst and hoping for the best, both in terms of like keeping the planet alive, but also in terms of risk and actions. And unfortunately, you know, what happened to Marius is that worst case scenario, I think, for activists. And most importantly, despite the fact that Marius's husband at the time, the father of his children was the snitch that caused him to be ensnared by the state. Marius never, ever, ever wavered from non-cooperation. And the punishment that he received, the, the longest incarceration of any environmental or animal rights activist in the US, to my knowledge, was in part because he never did bow his head and snitch out his comrades. And he went to prison for this incredibly long time with young children at the time. Um, you know, incredible, serious, grave consequences to him and his family, you know, to these children that lost their parent, you know, the daily contact with their parent is also just a lesson about integrity and that when people take risk and engage in actions, they have to not know and consent and understand that if they get caught, you know, even when the human that they, you know, loved and partnered children with, you know, betray them in the worst way possible, that they are going to be able to maintain their integrity, I think is probably one of the most important lessons learned from Marius's um, experience in dealing with state repression. We've seen so many individuals, um, you know, both especially in the Green Scare, who once they were caught, just immediately began snitching on their comrades and co-defendants and, you know, people in the community, generally speaking. Um, and, you know, that is not what a political movement looks like both historically, you know, and practically. And it is not for us to judge whether or not the tactics used were the most strategic or effective or whether you ethically agree or not. But I think, you know, what everyone can take away from this situation is, you know, number one, sometimes the worst does happen. Sometimes your loved one betrays you to the state and you end up getting the longest prison sentence um, and literally will spend the rest of your life under the thumb of the federal government, um, you know, monitoring your computers, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty much, you know, some of the worst consequences that you could face, you know, as an activist. But that to the movement, absolutely 1000% needs to be there every single day of that incarceration in order to support political prisoners and activists who did stand up and you know never cooperated and never snitched because by valuing that and supporting those individuals we are creating a political movement and a society where we recognize that the enemy is the state and that we are stronger together, um, you know, than, than not. That's all I wanted to say. Absolutely.
thank you for those incredibly powerful words, Lauren. Letha, I have a few more questions that I want to ask you, but I also got a very exciting surprise email which has a statement from Marius that he wants for us to share during this event. So is it cool if I go ahead and share that? And then we'll, since these last questions are really about like ongoing support needs, it seems like this would be like a good moment to hear Marius's voice in this convo today. And then we can talk about some of those other pieces too. Um, I guess I would just, I would like you to clarify that um... So Marius doesn't have access to the internet as you would understand. Yeah, a lot of so, people, um, I'm surprised by people thinking that, yeah, people who are incarcerated can just like log on to the internet. Uh, that's not a thing that he can do. So he there's a special um, means of doing so through the Bureau of Prisons. Um, and again, it, it also is that same 100 person list. Yeah, so sorry, go on. Correct, yeah, so this, statement came through that very system internal to specific for the Bureau of Prisons, like you were mentioning, Letha, and got passed on for us to share today. So it says, thank you all for coming together to speak about my case and how it intersects with a movement to address the destruction of the natural world. Both the environment and the animal species that are exploited for what is deemed to be their real value in dollars and not their intrinsic value in being what and who they are. I am humbled by your support and your commitment to making this world a better place, not just for humans, but for every one of our relations in this interrelated planet. It's a terrible thing to be right in retrospect though. We saw it coming. We witnessed the world on fire the rivers drying up, the ice sheets melting away, and the greatest extinction event yet swinging into high gear, and now know that our dire predictions were not even close to the actual devastating effects that we all see happening today. I understand the controversial nature of the strategies that I used as a clandestine operative of the ELF and ALF movements. I regret putting any living being at risk, and I'm always grateful that physical harm was averted. Though harm can occur in many forms, and I acknowledge that I was responsible for that damage. I confess to being desperate and to making desperate choices. I've been hoping for these long years in prison that better minds than mine could devise strategies that could be more effective and less risky, that would be ethical and courageous in their scope and purpose. My hope rests in people like you and in your continuing efforts to being about positive social change that protects this planet from its worst enemies, ourselves as a species. Not all human cultures have been as damaging as this modern industrial culture. So there have been examples, real examples of sustainability to learn from and to emulate, but we will only protect what we love. We will only love what we understand, and we will only make the painful changes that are necessary for our collective survival if we are willing to undergo a vast shift in our attitudes and our actions because of this great love. The future literally rests in your capable hands. I commend and encourage you to keep going, to persist, and 
prosper as loving stewards of this beautiful world we inherit together as a gift of grace. And that's Marius's words for all of us today. Again, just like powerful words from a truly inspiring person and activist and parent. And maybe the answer to this question is related to that is, I'm curious, Letha, what motivated you personally to get involved in supporting Marius? Yeah, uh, Marius was my neighbor. Um, <laughs> we lived in the same uh, small neighborhood in um, Cincinnati for a couple of years. Um, I'm not from Ohio originally, but I was there for two and a half years. Um, and he lived up the street from me. Um, and we kind of ran in the same social circles. Um, so there was like a bike collective that did, you know, repairs for kids in the neighborhood or um, there was community garden. And so, uh, but then also there was a books for prisoners that met once a week that I was involved in and Marius would actually come to those. Um, and uh, Josh Harper has actually spoke about how he's received, he, while incarcerated, he had received mail from Marius um, through Books to Prisoners. Uh, and so, yeah, that's how I knew Marius. Um, when he was arrested, he was on his way to work uh, and his 16 year old child was at home um, alone. And so I, my circle at the time sort of swooped in and helped with immediate immediate things, which included he had five cats, an iguana, and a dog. Um, and uh, my partner and I at the time took in the five cats and the dog. Um, another friend um, and supporter took the iguana, Ishtar. And um, yes, and so, uh, but we, uh, dog end up go going off to his mother's house, uh, but uh, we kept the five cats until they're passing a few years ago. Um, they were all in their like teens when we got them. Um, so they had all lived full lives with Marius in various states. Uh, so, um, but yeah, so I taken care of these five cats and I initially was sort of in communication with him while he's incarcerated by communicating about said cats. Um, and then it wasn't until, you know, through that communication and then eventually visiting him that we created a stronger relationship. Um, I remember some fundraisers that went around some years back for elder care for at least one of those cats and just a lot of gratitude for taking care of those cats. Uh, I think about that a lot as a parent and to both humans and uh, non-human creatures. Uh, if something like that was to happen to me, like who would care for those things? Who would care for my family? And that includes the furry parts of family too. So thank you for, for actually doing that and caring for them, um, for his animals. I'm wondering if you could share with us a little bit about if other people are feeling inspired to support Marius, how they might be able to plug in around his support. And also if you could share like what his future release date is and what plans or fundraising or infrastructure type pieces are being put into place for when he does get to come home. So I think like right now, I know that there's some frustration with Marius not able to respond to a lot of people. Um, you know, I think that he he does he does have 
on and off flurries of mail. Uh, sometimes he will go weeks without receiving any mail and that might not even be on us, that might be on the prison. But he is not always able to respond. It, again, like if he does receive the mail then and he has the ability to write back, it, he may not truly have the time or, or energy to do so. He often expresses to me how busy he feels while not being, you know, busy at all. But it's a lot of emotional weight that I think he takes on while incarcerated. But, you know, I still encourage people to write to him because that's still huge. And for anybody who's incarcerated, it really is a lifeline. It really can save lives to write to somebody who's incarcerated. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.